Well, Jesus is indeed worthy of his name, is he not? And we're going to see why this morning as we go back to our study in the book of Romans. And so I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 5. Yes, chapter 5. We are making some tracks now, right? Uh, Romans chapter 5. And uh, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 11 this morning. And someone mentioned to me earlier this week, knowing that I was going to try to tackle these you know, this, all these, all 11 verses here, how, asking how in the world are you going to do that? And, and it's true, there's a lot of truth in these 11 verses. And uh, just, just all over the place, just stuff, you know, low-hanging fruit for us to grab this morning and to enjoy and to savor. And, but I hope we'll have an opportunity to see just the big picture of this flow of thought here that Paul gave us here in Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. Let me read this text, and then we'll pray and talk about it. Romans 5, 1, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we exult in hope of the glory of God. And not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance proven character, and proven character hope, and hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who is given to us. For while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly, for one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we are yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more then, having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only this, but we also exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. God, we are called by the Spirit of, by your Spirit in this text to exult in you, to rejoice in you, to praise you, to be thrilled about our salvation in Christ. And so, Lord, as we walk our way through these verses, I pray that you would well up in our hearts a renewed sense of thankfulness and wonder and awe and worship as we consider your amazing grace in our salvation, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, in several of the Psalms that David wrote, Back in the Old Testament, he expressed the joy that was in his heart for the many ways and many times that God saved him from all sorts of difficult and threatening situations. In Psalm 9, verse 13, he said, Be gracious to me, O Lord. You lift me up from the gates of death that I may tell of all your praises, that I may rejoice in your salvation. 
In Psalm 13, 5, he said, my heart shall rejoice in your salvation. In Psalm 20, verse 5, he said, we will sing for joy over your salvation. And then in Psalm 35, verse 9, he says, my soul shall rejoice in the Lord. It shall exult in his salvation. David was thrilled about God's salvation. And whoever has experienced God's salvation in Christ should be equally elated. Sadly, however, there are times when we as Christians lose that sense of wonder of how awesome God's plan of salvation really is. And maybe we drift away from the Lord or we fall into some sin and we lose the joy of our salvation. That's what happened to David. Even though he was a man after God's own heart, he sinned. And in his model prayer of repentance in Psalm 51, he pleaded with God. He said, Lord, restore to me the what? The joy of my salvation. That may be the prayer you need to pray this morning. Because God's grace is no longer amazing to you, the initial joy that you had when you first became a Christian is worn off. I think anyone who's been a Christian for a while now knows what it's like to let the problems and the pressures of life uh, get us down. We, we go through seasons of life when our love for Christ grows cold. We become spiritually apathetic or indifferent to all that Christ has done to rescue us from sin and death and hell. And at those times, our life is marked more by discouragement than delight. We find ourselves more often disheartened than elated. Well, if that describes you this morning, I've got good news for you because this passage will help restore the joy of your salvation. It'll put the skip back in your step. It'll put the smile back on your face that you had when you first got saved. And, and here in Romans chapter 5, Paul exited the theological superhighway that he's been traveling down. The first four chapters of this letter to the believers in Rome, and he essentially just stops and says, hey, time out. Let's take a rest for a moment and, and consider what we've just discussed. Let's talk about specifically the tremendous blessings or benefits that those who believe in the gospel enjoy both now and forever. If you have that little roadmap for Romans uh, in your Bible, hopefully you uh, have kept that in there for easy access. I had to rip off my mom's this morning. I figured if anybody had it, it'd be my mom, right? So... Anyway, I grabbed her copy, but just to remind you quickly of the flow of thought here in the book of Romans. We saw the introduction in, in, in chapter 1, verses 1 through 17, but the majority of uh, chapters 1, um, 2, and 3 are all about our lack of righteousness, that we are under condemnation. And starting in chapter 3, verse 21, Paul transitions to the subject of justification, which he continues to address all the way to the end of this chapter, chapter 5, verse 21. And the way you can break up this section is that in chapter 3, verses 21 through 31, 
He talks about justification described. He, he talks about propitiation. And then last, the last couple of weeks, we looked at chapter 4, where we see justification illustrated. And he talks about circumcision there. And now we're in chapter 5, and we're going to see how justification is enjoyed. And we're using the word there, exaltation, uh, straight out of uh, the text here uh, in, in Romans chapter 5. Now, again, Paul has just finished giving the clearest, most comprehensive description of the doctrine of justification by faith alone found anywhere in the Bible. And he has explained why we need to be justified and how we are justified. And now he explained what happens to a person who has been justified. And he was, I think, in chapter 5, expanding on the phrase, our justification, from the previous verse, chapter 4, verse 25, he who was delivered over because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justification. So he's going to expand on this, this subject of our justification. Now it's not just those guys and, and, and you guys, it's us, it's we, our justification. I think he's also... Um, explaining what he said back in chapter 4, verse 6, just as David also speaks of the blessing on the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. And so we're going to see the, the specifically what, are, what is the blessing, what are the blessings of that person who has been credited with the righteousness of Christ. And I think overall, Paul was assuring his readers that God indeed justifies people by faith alone. In other words, it's safe to simply believe. And uh, the reason why I say that is because um, we're going to see this as we go through these first 11 verses and then next week, Lord willing, uh, in the second half of this letter, that he used the phrase, much more, much more than, um, five times in this chapter, in verse 9, in verse 10, in verse 15, in verse 17, in verse 20, which indicates that he wanted to offset the feelings of uncertainty or in insecurity that his teaching might produce in people's minds. So he's, he's arguing from, uh, if you will, the greater to the lesser, that if God has already done this, how much more will he do this? you got nothing to worry about. you you got nothing to be afraid of. And in the first 11 verses, which we're going to look at this morning, Paul used the word exult three times. One in chapter, or one in verse 2, uh, a second time in verse 3, and then again in verse 11. And this is a very important word. I personally believe, as you can see, as you will see, by the way, I'm going to teach this this morning, that I believe that is the theme of verses 1 through 11, this idea of exulting. So you say, what does it mean to exult? I don't, I don't really use that word. I don't hear that term too often. Well, if you look up the word exult in the dictionary, it means to rejoice or to relish or enjoy something to the full or, or to savor or to delight in or to revel in or to bask in or to literally, ready for this, jump for joy. That's what it means to exult. That you, that you leap for joy. And, and Paul's basic point in, this, in these first 11 verses is that justification, our justification, should make us want to jump for joy. 
And so what we're going to see here in these verses are eight blissful blessings that every believer should be overjoyed by as a result of being justified through faith in Christ alone. And it's important that we continue to emphasize this justification comes through faith in Christ. Again, in verses 1 through 11, you may have recognized this as we read through it. There's another phrase that is used multiple times, in fact, five times. The phrase, through Christ or through Him, is used here. And again, I think Paul was reminding his readers that Christ is the mediator of salvation, that, that all of God's blessings, all of God's benefits are channeled through Christ. In other words, you can't have any of these things unless you have Christ, unless you know Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. And so let's look at these, these blissful blessings one at a time. That, uh, that, that you, if you're a believer here uh, this morning, you should be overjoyed by. That hopefully as we finish this list, you'll be, you'll be skipping out the door uh, or jumping for joy, right? This morning is, is, the, is the point. And so first of all, we should be overjoyed that we have peace with God, that we have peace with God. Verse 1, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, that word therefore tells us that this is a transition uh, in this letter. And uh, this short little phrase there, therefore, having been justified by faith, that is a, a pregnant term there or a phrase there that summarizes everything he just got done saying in chapters 1 through 4 about justification by faith alone. And so he's, he's assuming that we, we, we know all that, that we've actually uh, studied all that. And so now he simply says, therefore, having been justified by faith, by virtue of the fact that you've been declared righteous on the basis of faith and your sin has been credited or transferred to Christ's account and Christ's righteousness has been credited or transferred to your account, the following is true, that we have peace with God. Now, this is not the subjective feeling of peace, like, oh, I'm so, good to have, I'm so glad I have peace of mind. This is not peace of mind. This is the objective state of no longer being at war with God. And that is exactly what we were before we were saved. And believe it or not, we weren't the ones who declared war on God. I would submit to you that God declared war on us. Why? Because God was angry with us. His wrath abided on us, and it was building up against us. We learned that in Romans chapter 1. God was hostile toward us. But now since God vented his anger against our sin on his son Jesus, who was punished as our substitute, his anger is now satisfied. His hostility towards us has been done away with. It's been removed. We are no longer his foes. We are now his friends. Colossians chapter 1 verse 19, Paul said, For it was the Father's good pleasure to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Now, there was nothing we could do to stop the war between us and God. He had to do it through his son, Jesus Christ. 
And so the first thing that we should be overjoyed by is that we have peace with God. Secondly, we should be overjoyed that we have access to God, that we have access to God. Verse 2, through whom also we have obtained our introduction or access by faith into this grace in which we stand. We've learned from uh, the previous chapters that in our natural sinful state, we are unfit or unworthy to enter God's holy presence. But when Christ died on the cross, if you remember the the veil in the temple that separated the, the holy of holies from the rest of the temple and the only one who could ever go behind that veil um, to, and had access to God once a year was the high priest of Israel. That, that veil was torn in two from top to bottom, which was a, a representation that God had, had removed that which divided us, that, that which separated us from him. And all those who place their faith alone in Christ's work on the cross for their salvation can now have direct access to God. We don't have to go through a priest. We don't have to go behind a veil. That, that, that barrier has been broken. 1 Peter 3.18 says, For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that we, he might bring us to God. There's no way we could have gone into God's presence by ourselves. God's Son had to bring us in there, bring us with Him. And so now that we are robed with the righteousness of Christ, we, we meet God's approval. And He welcomes us to come boldly into His presence. This is what the Scripture teaches, Ephesians 3.12. In Christ, we have boldness and confident access through faith in Him. I love Hebrews 4.16. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Paul went on in this letter, as we'll see in Romans chapter 8, to say that we are co-heirs with Christ. Chapter 8, verse 16. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God and of children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. In other words, we are as near and dear to God as his own beloved son. Think about that. We are as near and dear to God as his own beloved son. That's what it means. That's the the blessing, the benefit of being a co-heir with Christ. I mean, what a privileged position that we hold in Christ. We are considered perfect in God's sight, and our position is permanent. It says that we stand in grace. In other words, we don't fall in and out of God's favor. One day we're in it, and then one day we're out of God's graces, God's good graces. No, we're always in God's grace. I'm sure that some of you uh, couldn't help yourselves yesterday and you had to watch the royal wedding, right? Uh, It just captures the attention of the world, it seems. And uh, I thought it was interesting um, to see the people as they came into um, Windsor Castle and into that sanctuary, that there was a, a select group of family members and, and friends who were invited to Harry and Meghan's wedding. 
And, and that was a great honor. That was a great privilege. But as great a privilege as that was, our access to the king of the universe, we have access to the king of the universe, right? Not just, not just for a day of festivities, but all the time, for all eternity. We will dwell in the king's presence forever. Listen, there was nobody there that got to stay there. It's okay, well, you came for the wedding, now you get to stay the rest of your life. You have to live here with us. No, they're like, you can go now, right? Not us. We're going to get to live in the palace of the king of the universe forever. What a great benefit. What a great privilege. Why? Because we have access to God, and we should be overjoyed by that. Just imagine if you had gotten an invitation in the mail to go to the royal wedding, how excited you might have been. You're like, I can't believe this. Is this real? No way. I can't believe it. You'd be overjoyed, right? Well, we have had that invitation given to us in the scriptures to enter the presence of God. Number three, we should be overjoyed that we can share in the glory of God. We should be overjoyed that we can share in the glory of God. Notice what he says at the end of verse two. He says, by faith into this grace in which we stand and we exult in hope of the glory of God. We exult in hope of the glory of God. Again, to exult means to enjoy or rejoice in something. Hope is a joyful, confident expectation that something will happen because God has promised that it would happen. And what does he promise to us specifically here? That we will see his glory and not only see his glory, we will share his glory. And that's not, I, I hope so, I keep my fingers crossed uh, that I'm going to see his glory, I'm going to share. No, guess what? I know for sure I have this joyful, confident expectation because God has promised that I will see him. And when I see him, I will be like him. And this should be a big deal in our minds if we know where we came from. Because according to Romans 1.23, because of our sinful rebellion against God, we rejected his glory. In fact, we exchanged his glory for lesser things. And in, in, in Romans 3.23, we, we, we remember we, we, we all fall short of God's glory but now, since we've placed our faith in Christ, all that changes. Now we rejoice in God's glory, and someday we will experience God's glory. We will actually reflect God's glory the way we were originally created to do. And so we look forward to that day when we'll, again, not only gaze on his glorious presence or splendor, but we will, ourselves will be glorified and made like him. Jesus said this, who we know, uh, John said that when we saw Jesus, we beheld his glory. We saw the glory of God in the face of Christ. John 17, verse 22, Jesus prayed in his high priestly prayer. He said, God, the glory which you have given me, I have given to them, his disciples, that's us, that they may be one just as we are one. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, be with me where I am so that they may see my glory which you have given me. Jesus asked the Father, and I believe still is asking the Father, that we would get to see his glory in heaven. 
2 Corinthians 3.18, but we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord the Spirit. Philippians chapter 3, verse 20, for our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly await for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his what? Remember? His glory. Colossians 3, 4, when Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Before we leave these first three verses, uh, just make sure you don't miss the past, present, and future aspects of these blessings that we enjoy in Christ. We have been justified by faith. That's past tense. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we've also obtained our introduction by faith into his grace in which we stand. That's the present blessing of salvation. And then the future blessing is that we exult in the hope of the glory of God. And so these blessings that we're talking about here, that Paul is explaining here, are, uh, affect us past, present, and future. Well, let's look at the fourth blessing. And this might be one that might cause you to raise your eyebrows a bit, but we should be overjoyed by the trials sent from God. We should be overjoyed by the trials sent from God. Verse 4, excuse me, verse 3, and not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance, proven character, and proven character, hope. Paul doesn't want anyone to, to think that he has a pie-in-the-sky, Pollyanna perspective of what it means to be a Christian that naively ignores or, or minimizes the harsh realities of life. It, just because we commit our lives to follow Christ doesn't make us immune from bad things happening to us. And so he says, we also exult in our tribulations. In other words, one of the benefits of standing in God's grace and one of the best evidences of God's grace in our lives is that we are able to rejoice in the trials and the tribulations that he ordains for our lives. The Bible is very clear that every Christian will face hard times. John 16, Jesus said, in the world you have tribulation. But take courage, I've overcome the world. In Acts 14.22, right after Paul was stoned and left for dead outside the city, he came back in and said this, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. I should say yes. Paul said to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.12, indeed all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be what? Persecuted. So the Bible makes it clear that that we, we will face hard times, but the Bible also makes it clear how we're to respond to life's difficulties and frustrations. Turn over to James chapter 1. James chapter 1, I'm sure is a familiar passage to most. James chapter 1 verse 2, James says, consider it all 
joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. We're supposed to maintain a joyful attitude, even when life stinks and things aren't going our way. How is that possible? Verse 3, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And in other words, you know that there's a process going on here. That God is testing your faith and he's wanting to produce in you endurance. And he says, let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. It's essentially what Paul said back in Romans chapter 5. He says, but we also exult in our tribulations, verse 3, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance. And perseverance, proven character. We understand, we, we know by experience, that's the word there, knowing, epignosis. We, we, it's not just a superficial knowledge, some facts out there, but we know by experience that there is a divine rationale behind trials. That God ordains trials to grow us and to mature us and to make us more like Christ. That's what he said in Romans 8, verse 28 and 29. And we know that God causes all things, even the bad things, to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. And what is his purpose in calling us? For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of who? His son. And so trials work for us, not against us. And this process of, of being conformed to the likeness of Christ or, or, or growing spiritually involves several things. First of all, uh, we must grow in perseverance or endurance, which is that, that word there, um, perseverance, is the word to describe the ability to remain under difficult situations without giving in to the pressure or buckling under the weight of the trial. So trials and tribulations are designed to develop steadfastness and, and stamina. If our lives were problem-free, we would never develop spiritual strength. Rather than, rather than um, developing, it would destroy our faith if we just had an easy life. And so trials strengthen our faith. Those of you that work out, you know how this, this, this process works, right? It's been interesting since I've started working out at Aaron's House of Pain. That's what I call it. Aaron's House of Pain. That, that pain and that suffering of working out when you're doing something, you're thinking, I don't think I can lift this. I don't think I can keep running. I don't think I can do another burpee. I don't, I don't think I, and you just keep doing them. And, and, and what happens over time, you develop strength and you develop stamina. You, you develop endurance. And I can do a lot more. I can lift more and run farther than I could a year and a half, two years ago. Why? Because you, you just bear up under that pressure and you don't quit and you don't give in and, 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 and you, you, you don't buckle. And so you develop strength and stamina. And that's the same thing that happens to us, spiritually speaking. When God loads up the, the barbell, right, and says, bench press that, 
And you're like, I don't think I can bench press that. Well, I, he, this is a good thing, right? He's the personal trainer. He knows what you can handle, what you can't handle. He'll never put more weight on your bar than you can handle. That's the promise of 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation is overtaking you, but that which is common to man, and God is faithful. He'll not let you be tempted or tried beyond what you're able. So you've got to trust him. If he says you can lift it, if he puts all that weight on your bar, he puts that trial in your life, apparently he knows that by his grace you can handle it. And so we develop endurance or perseverance. And number two, we, we develop proven character. So God uses trials to test our faith, to see if it's genuine. And the idea here is that of, of metal being refined as to remove its impurities so that we have sterling character. I love what Peter said in 1 Peter, Peter chapter 1, verse 6. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you may have not seen him, you love him, and though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Same thing that Paul was saying about exulting in our trials, in our tribulations. Why? Because God uses trials to chip away the imperfections in our lives. I'll never forget reading, and I don't know if it's an accurate account or not, but someone asked the great sculptor Michelangelo one time, after looking at this amazing uh, sculpture he had, he, he had done of a lion, and, and, and somebody said, how did you do that? That is amazing. To start with this piece of rock, and it, now it looks like this lion. He said, well, I just chipped away everything that didn't look like a lion. And God looks at us, and he's, he, he just chips away everything that doesn't look like Christ. That's how he sculpts us. You think about Paul's example, Paul's own example in, in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. God gave him a, a, what he called a thorn in the flesh. 2 Corinthians chapter 12 verse 7, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations that he had, he went to heaven and back um, in order to keep him humble to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. I think that was probably not some physical uh, ailment, uh, but probably a person, a false teacher in the church in Corinth that was just like a thorn in his side. Concerning this, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me, and he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast or exult about my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. So, if you're facing a trial right now, you need to rejoice in knowing that God has sovereignly ordained that for your life. And he's wisely using it to purify your faith, to remove the impurities in your life, to build your character and to perfect you and conform you into the image of Jesus Christ. And see, when you think like that, when you know that, it provides us, what's the last thing? Hope. 
and confidence. In other words, we recognize that, that God is strengthening our faith and developing our character and making us, he's, he's making us long for heaven where we'll finally be with and be like Jesus. In Romans 8, verse 17, he says that we are heirs of Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. In 2 Corinthians 4, 17, he said, for momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And so you have perseverance, you have proven character, and you have hope. And notice verse 5, he says, and this hope does not disappoint. You ever got your hopes up for something? Only to have them dashed, right? We all know what it's like to, to really hope that something happens or works out a certain way, and, 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 and then... When things don't work out the way we hoped, we get disappointed. We have broken expectations. And again, I think the thought may have been here in Paul's mind. Again, he's always thinking about that imaginary heckler out there who might be asking himself, well, how do we know that this won't happen to us when it comes to our salvation? I mean, if you're going to have broken expectations, you do not want it to be when it comes to your salvation. <laughs> That you spend your whole life hoping that when you die, you're going to go to heaven and you find out it was just some big illusion. There's really no such thing as heaven and hell and you pretty much just hoped in nothing. So is the hope of heaven wishful thinking? How can we know for sure? Well, the answer to that question is simple. God keeps his promises and he has promised that absolutely nothing can separate us from his love. Notice verse five, and hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. And he will expand on this in chapter eight, verses 35 through 39, asking the question, who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution and he lists all sorts of trials. He says nothing will be able to separate us, not even death, from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so we need to be overjoyed by the trials that God brings into our life. He ordains for our lives. But then that leads us to number five. We should be overjoyed that we are loved by God. We should be overjoyed that we are loved by God. Again, he says... This hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through who? I can't hear you. Make sure you're still awake. The Holy Spirit who was given to us. God sends his Holy Spirit first to regenerate us and then to help us live the Christian life. By the way, this is the first time that Paul mentioned the Holy Spirit in this letter. He's going to talk about him more uh, in, in, um, in chapter 8. Because everything in the Christian life depends on the Holy Spirit. And uh, one of the main roles of the Holy Spirit is to assure us that God loves us. 
I think it's ironic that whenever we face trials and suffering and tragedies that we are typically perplexed, we, even though we don't know what God's doing, we kind of know what he's doing, right? Because even though we don't know specifically, we know generally that he's using this to make us like Christ, but we get perplexed. And, and more times than not, we begin to question his what for us? His love for us. This love here that Paul refers to, the love of God, is obviously the Greek word agape, which is the word reserved for God's love for us. This is not just some warm, fuzzy feeling, but it's a deep-seated conviction that God loves us. He has our best interest in mind, that he'll never leave us or, or forsake us. I can't help but remember a former member of our church who's since moved to Oklahoma and they had a daughter who uh, contracted this rare form of cancer and she wasn't supposed to survive and by the grace of God she has survived and, but I'll never forget visiting this, this mom in the hospital. I went down to the medical center and I walked into this hospital room and I can still see it was like it was yesterday and there's her little girl laying in the bed with this incurable cancer. And before I could get a word out to be an encouragement to her, give her some hope or to pray for her, this mom said, I have got to believe that this is God loving us. I was speechless. I mean, what else could I say? She already got it. She already figured it out. She had the hope. She had the conviction she was not questioning God's love in all this. Where is God in this? How could he do this? If you really loved our little girl, how could he do this to her? No, he, she, she knew, she was convinced that this was God loving them. And if you need some proof as to how much God loves you, Paul goes on to provide the ultimate proof of God's love for us. God's love for us is poured out by the Spirit and it's proved by the cross. That is the ultimate evidence of God's love is that he sacrificed himself through his son's death in our place on the cross. For God so loved the world that he what? Gave his only begotten son. Galatians 2.20, uh, who he, he loved me and gave himself up for me, Paul said. And in verses 6 through 8, Paul elaborated on this radical, otherworldly nature of God's love. Notice he says, for while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man, someone would dare even to die. So he says, for while we were still helpless, while we were still weak, without strength, completely powers, powerless to save ourselves, we were dead in our transgressions and sins. We are objects of God's wrath, Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. At the right time, when we needed it the most, Christ died for the ungodly. Those who were totally disregarding, blowing off God, had no reverence, no respect for God, not, not giving him honor, not giving him thanks. And 
I mean, does that make any sense, by the way, that God would love us when we hated him and didn't want anything to do with him? Sound unbelievable? That's Paul's point. Humans, human love is, is based on or influenced by the attractiveness of the object being loved. That's how you and I love. We see something or someone that looks good to us or we taste something that we like and we love it. However, there was nothing attractive to God about us. In fact, we were repulsive to God. The fact that God loved us in spite of our sin proves his love is not based or influenced by anything in us. He sovereignly chose to set his affection on us. He says, one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man someone dare even to die. I mean, it's possible, he says, someone might willingly sacrifice their life for a good person, but that's extremely rare. That's why purple hearts are rare. It happens in disaster situations, in war. People sacrifice their own lives to save other people. It happens, but usually it's a buddy, it's a friend, it's, it, it, it's, a, it's a whatever, right? Have you ever heard of someone jumping into the foxhole of their enemy to fall on the grenade to save their life? Doesn't happen. But that's exactly what God did. Verse 8, but God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we are yet sinners, Christ died for us. I mean, this is an unprecedented, unparalleled display of love unlike anything the world has ever seen or ever will see. And by the way, it says God demonstrates, not demonstrated. You notice that? It's not a past tense. This is a present active verb here. In other words, God's love is constantly being displayed, being demonstrated, being proved through the cross. And so we should never question or doubt his love for us. And so we should be overjoyed that we are loved by God. Number six, we should be overjoyed that we will escape the wrath of God. We should be overjoyed that we will escape the wrath of God. Verse nine, much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. Again, Paul's arguing from the greater to the lesser, from the hardest to the simplest. He says it again in verse 10, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. In other words, if God's already done that, well, then this is easy. Having now been justified by his blood, if, we, if he already declared a guilty sinner righteous on the basis of Christ's death in their place, surely we will, will be saved from the wrath of God through him. We know that when Christ was on the cross, God poured out all of his holy hatred against our sin on Christ, and he treated his precious son as his, as his most vile enemy, his most loyal servant. 
He treated him like his most vile enemy. And so Jesus felt the full fury of God's anger towards sin that should have been vented on us. And consequently, the good news is that it is unthinkable that God would ever punish us for our sin or damn us to hell. Double jeopardy, right? Already poured out his wrath on Christ. It's been satisfied once and for all. And so we should be overjoyed that we will escape the wrath of God. Number seven, we should be overjoyed that we are reconciled to God. Verse 10, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Again, the thought here is that if left to ourselves, we, we would have been perfectly content to remain at odds with God. We were haters of God. God didn't just hate us, we hated him. We were alienated from him. We were hostile in our mind, according to Colossians 1.29. But Christ's death removed the mutual enmity or hatred between us. And if God did all this while we were his enemies, surely he will do far more now that we're friends. Notice he says there, now that we've been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Everything was about his death so far. Now he's talking about his life. What is, what is he talking about now? He's talking about his present resurrected life, which is being lived where, by the way? In heaven, at the right hand of God's throne, where he's interceding on our behalf. He talks about that in chapter 8, verse 34. It says, Christ who was raised is at the right hand of God who also intercedes for us. Hebrews 7.25 says, therefore, Christ is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. And so this is how it goes. Whenever we sin and we confess it to God, Christ serves as our what? Our advocate. And lets God know that, hey, you know what? He belongs to me. That sin is covered by his blood, my blood that I shed on the cross. I died for that sin. And so as John says in 1 John 2, verse 1, if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous, and he himself is the propitiation for our sins. Don't miss the now and not yet aspect of salvation here. If somebody says, hey, are you saved? An accurate answer is sort of, partly. I have been, but I, there's still part of it that will be in the future, right? Not to confuse you, don't think about that too long. But there's this now and, and not yet aspect of salvation. And what has happened and what is happening guarantees what will happen. If you're shaky, like, okay, I think I'm saved, but I'm not sure. I got to wait. No. Listen, if you've been justified and you are reconciled, you will be saved. You will be delivered. And in the meantime, God is at work in our lives through trials and through suffering to create more Christ-like character and deepen our hope in and longing for heaven. And sometimes, you know, the sanctification process gets a little shaky sometimes, doesn't it? 
And you're on this, this rope bridge, and you're just like, and if you've ever been on a rope bridge, my wife, my wife won't get on, okay? Just, she's not getting on this rope bridge, right? I mean, they're just kind of freaky. You get on this rope bridge, and, and all of a sudden, it starts shaking and moving, and the wind starts going, and you're looking down, and you're like, I don't know if I'm going to make it here. We need to understand when we're on that rope bridge of sanctification that it is an unbreakable bridge. Why? Because it's tethered on one side to our past justification, and then it's tethered to the other side to our future glorification, neither of which can move. You've got our past justification, we've got our future glorification, and here we are walking along our little rickety bridge, right, in the sanctification process. Well, there's one last thing that we should be overjoyed by, one last blessing, and that is God himself. God himself. Verse 11, and not only this, but we also exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. In other words, we shouldn't just rejoice in all these blessings, we should rejoice in the giver of the blessings. Himself. We should be glad in God. Interesting. All the other verbs so far uh, related to us, what we should be doing, if you will, uh, are passive. In other words, that we were acted on by something. that We had nothing to do with it. It was all God's part. But this is the first time when it says we also exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is how we participate in our salvation, if you will. He said, I didn't think we participate in our salvation. Well, you do after you get saved, and that's by praising God. Having a continuous attitude of praise and thanksgiving to God for the gift of salvation that he's given to you in Christ. It's what, what the psalmist said in Psalm 34, oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. Or how about this? I love Psalm 43, 4. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy. Have you ever asked God to be your exceeding joy? That that he would be the ultimate joy, the, the thing that brings you the most happiness and satisfaction in this life? We need to be overjoyed In God himself, who is the giver of all these blessings. We should be constantly bursting forth with joyful praise in light of all these blessings we have through Christ. Our family, like I'm sure many of your families right now, has been doing a lot of celebrating this is the time of year, right? Lots of stuff happens, at least in our family. Um, there's birthdays, there's anniversaries this year, there's two graduations. So, but of all the special occasions and milestones and accomplishments and new stages of life, there's nothing we should celebrate more than what? Graduation? Birthday? Anniversary? No, how about Salvation? And you can have a salvation party every day. Our lives should really be one big celebration of our salvation. We should be just whipping it up for Jesus every day. Aggies, can I hear an Aggie here? Yeah, thank you. I knew there were some out there, right? 
Just all the time. Hey, if you can whip for your favorite school, why can't you whip for your favorite savior, right? You know, there's an expression that we sometimes use when we talk about celebrating something that we're going to go out and paint the town red. I don't even know what that means, to be honest with you, but it was in the thesaurus for celebration. Paint the town red. I've heard it before, so you might have used that before. How appropriate that is for us as Christians. We just can't keep our celebration contained in the four walls of this church. We need to go out of here and paint the town red. How do we do that? Let me tell you how we do that. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 18. Now all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, namely that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were making an appeal through us We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. So that's what we get to do today and this week. We get to paint the town red as we celebrate our salvation. And if we're exulting, leaping for joy, skipping and smiling, and people are going, what's your problem? What have you been drinking? What are you on, right? Well, let me tell you, it's called Jesus And how you too can be reconciled to God through Christ. I think it's interesting that when Charles Wesley looked for words to describe what it might mean to exult in God, the God of our salvation, he came up with this expression, oh, for a thousand, what? Tongues. To say, I wish I had more tongues. One's not enough. I wish I had a thousand tongues to sing my great Redeemer's praise, the glories of my God and King, the triumphs of His grace. That's the first verse. I think it's interesting how he ended that hymn. Not only did he want a thousand tongues to sing His great Redeemer's praise, he says this, my gracious master and my God, assist me to proclaim, to spread through all the earth abroad the honors of thy name. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the one tongue that you have given us. And apparently that is enough to sing your praise and to proclaim your gospel throughout the earth. I pray, Lord, that you would stir up our hearts with great joy, with great celebration. Lord, that you would, if necessary, restore the joy to us, the joy of our salvation. And Lord, that you would be our exceeding joy, that nothing else would ever supplant you as our ultimate hope and joy in life. And Lord, that you would help us to be Christ's ambassadors who faithfully and passionately proclaim the good news of how people can be reconciled with you through the person and work of your son. Lord, help us. Lord, be gracious to us. Assist us to do these things for your glory, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.